2: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 66th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Two Intriguing Minds in Conversation. I'm joined by both David Birch and Fred Matzer for a special edition episode focused on what you might call philosophizing on how one might or should see the world And live one's life. David Birch is the author of Pandora's Book, 401 Philosophical Questions to Help You Lose Your Mind with Answers. The publisher is IFF Books, an imprint of John Hunt Publishing. And Fred Matzer is the author of Beyond Us, a humanitarian's perspective on our values, beliefs, and way of life. The publisher is likewise IFF Books. David Birch teaches philosophy and religious studies at Highgate School in London and also works with the Philosophy Foundation. Fred Matzer is the founder and chairman of the Fred Foundation and a leading Dutch humanitarian, as well as the founder or co-founder of a wide range of other foundations. Welcome to the show, David and Fred. Thank you so much. Very much looking forward to it. So briefly, let's start with you, David. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your book? It's uh, intriguing. And how did you get to these 401 questions that you chose?
1: Well, it started off uh, with questions I'd written for students. Um, They were sort of bored with the set topics that we were doing as part of public examinations. And um, I wanted something to stimulate them more and to provoke them more. So I started writing these questions, and I wrote about a dozen of them. And they're sort of philosophical questions with yes or no answers. And uh, they just kept asking for more. And their appetite was insatiable. Um, to the point where I got to um, 401. Although there were more I had to cut down. But the, the, I, then I wanted to just to sort of share that experience that they'd had through the questions, um, and through discovering problems that they found particularly fascinating and important to them with with other people. And so it's sort of a, an introduction to philosophy. Um but which acts not to sort of guide you through the core topics, not to be a sort of one one lecture series, but to, to plunge you into the the kind of the upper of philosophical confusion um, and experience for yourself um, the perplexities of philosophical thought. Um, and so the way I sort of conceive of it is introductory books tend to be sort of front doors into philosophy that sort of welcome you in. I'm not sure philosophy quite works like that. I th- think it's more a subject you enter through trap doors. they just, the floor opens up beneath you and, and you suddenly find yourself confronted with philosophical questions that, um, that, um, that, uh, you find particularly bewildering and baffling and exciting. And so that was really the aim of the book. And then the answers are drawn from uh, a variety of sources. Um, such as uh writers as well as philosophers. Um because I just simply was almost approaching it as a sort of a headness, wanting to find those texts that would be the most stimulating and interesting to use. Not necessarily the ones that are um uh, that would sort of be the the standard texts for those questions.
2: Yeah no they were not the standard texts. I mean after all the questions like is perfume art is poetry flammable? Uh, I enjoyed those very much. I'm glad the students uh, pushed you along in doing this. Um, and in Fred, in your case, what was the inspiration for the book, and what's it about?
3: Yeah, my inspiration was that uh, I more and more came to see not only being a part of society and a world in which we live with society, with our environment and the animals. Uh, I came more and more in a position that I could look at it. And a big boost in that respect was a kind of transcendental experience which I had many years ago, which really brought me in a level of consciousness that was so informing and more than pleasant that I got out of that experience with many questions. And so I started to look from a distance and see how we behave and take a different perspective on our human behavior. And doing that, um, in doing that, it helps me also to change my own behavior behavior for the better.
2: Yeah, you no, know, I found it interesting because I, I approached both of these initially as books that were about philosophy, but in David's case, I discovered all these wonderful literary allusions uh, and Fred, in your case, I said, well, you know, I think of philosophy in terms of one's thoughts, but you're very focused on physical sensations, one's emotions, and indeed how one actually behaves, including within a community structure. So there, really, there's a broad purview to this book that uh, goes far beyond what might be traditionally thought of as philosophy. I also have to say, in your case, Fred, there's some amazing endorsements for this book. I mean, it's not very often that I will see endorsements that range from Gorbachev to Jane Goodall. Uh, that, that's uh, quite a range and, and quite a compliment to you. Uh, David, in your case, let's go back to something that's pretty foundational. Right in the introduction, you say, uh, you raise the question, why does philosophy exist? Um, so I want to give you a chance to answer that seminal
1: question. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think my answer is entirely unsatisfactory um (laughs) but quite all right go ahead uh i i sort of posit um a, a drive sort of the cognitive equivalent to the libido um something that just um impels us to uh to question and to seek um perplexity and bewildering sort of problems um and it was just i was really just sort of reifying the, the experience of, I think the appetite, the, the philosophical appetite, um, is there actually such uh, a drive? Um, I called it the Epinoa. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was more just a way to sort of, um, it's more like a homunculus really, a sort of a character, the internal philosopher, um, and so I I, I I don't know why philosophy exists. But <laughs> well, that's I mean, okay.
2: I, I I thought I thought you had an answer in part because you talked about our our insatiable curiosity that we we probe, we stretch, we wonder. We we know we don't actually have the answers, including to the question I just gave you. Yes, uh, and, and that's actually okay because that's part of the predicament and part of the fun uh, in exploring it. I, am I putting words in your mouth, or is that a, a fair enough distillation of what I thought I read in your introduction?
1: No, yeah, that's fair. Um, uh, But that that insatiable curiosity—I'm not sure. I, I, I don't have an explanation for that. Um, I mean, I suppose, um, as animals, and I suppose Fred might have something to say about this, as animals seemingly that don't have our own natural habitats as such, who are able to go beyond particular habitats, maybe (laughs) as a sort of to accompany that we were given the sort of cognitive ability to also wander beyond conceptual uh, familiarity in our conceptual habitats. Um, So there might be a correlation there, Um, but I mean, I'm just wildly speculating.
2: (laughs) That's quite right. I mean, I I thought that was one of the points of affinity because very early in your book, Fred, uh, in your essay called paths, uh, you talked about uh, kind of a polarity or duality between being driven by security and convenience as opposed to curiosity and wonderment and you you certainly come down on the latter end of those two choices um what do you want to say about why philosophy exists and the role of curiosity
3: yeah well i think philosophy uh exists in consciousness and it's uh, a language a way we organize information and we can interact with one another amongst others uh, around the theme path and uh Philosophy, in a way, is a path. Uh, What I want to say with that is, say, thousands and thousands of years ago, there were no paths. People just walked in nature, used their intuition to inform them where to go, where to find food. And gradually, uh, people developed paths. And fast forward, we have paths that uh, make us uh, basically restrict our choices. Although through IT, we have millions of choices to make. uh, We are prohibited from making choices beyond those paths where there are billions of other uh, forms of choices. So I wanted to get our attention to the fact that it looks like we have infinite possibilities with Uh, with technology but basically when you look at it differently it pre-programs us in it's like multiple choice on a big scale well before we didn't have that limitation that's one way to look at path if you can you can see it as an advantage or disadvantage i don't know i mean sparrows uh, uh birds or many of animals don't have these restrictions in choices. They can just go their own way. So in that way, are we that smart? I, I'm, I'm not sure we have a high level of being individual in a, in a way that, that restricts us. And it uh, discerns and from animals that have, consciousness-wise, a less restricted consciousness because they are part of often group consciousness and much more in in touch with signals uh, in nature than than we are. We created our own restrictions in that respect.
2: Okay. Well, I, yeah, I think uh, there are no answers very often. I think Gertrude Stein said that, in fact, the, the answer is that there are no answers, but the, the ready-made prefabricated answer might be the very worst of all answers. Um, The way I'm going to frame this going forward now is there are, indeed, these 401 questions that were in David's book, uh, prompted in part by the student's curiosity and desire for more of these. Uh, I've chosen a few. Uh, I've looked for correlations that I think lend them back to uh, some of the things that Fred has written about as well. And I'm just going to go after a few of these, and that might be the framework for how we discuss things, and it may not prove to be. Who knows? Uh, We'll take whatever path (laughs) makes sense here. Uh, let's do it that way. But let's let's at least begin to assume we have some semblance of a path. So I'm going to go really early in the book. It's question number seven, David. It was, "Are you a stranger to yourself?" And as I read what followed in the answer, I went back to my literature days as a PhD student in English, and would often talk about the unreliable narrator uh, of the novel. Uh, are we all unreliable narrators in life? Are, are we indeed strangers to yourself? Uh, what did you say in the book? And what do you think yourself personally?
1: Just uh, before I answer that, I just wanted to return to something Fred said, because um, it just struck sure, me as an sure interesting parallel. Fred was talking about paths, which is a really interesting concept because um Sox is in his sort of process of questioning people. He wanted to institute, induce the state of aporia, which etymologically means without a path. Um And so, you know, going back to Socrates, his aim there was to to rid people of these paths. Um, So this concept of a path seems particularly rich. Um, In terms of that question, um, are you a stranger to yourself? I mean, I suppose the fact that I find it difficult to know the answer suggests I am. Um, The the answer I look at... um, and I sometimes forget because there are so many. Was it Samuel Butler? Uh, Joseph Butler, yes. Joseph Butler, sorry. Um his view was that um our lack of um self-awareness is the source is is the root of our um our sort of um moral failings. Um it's because we don't know ourselves that we're capable of of um, of sort of committing acts of of, of great moral turpitude. But I, I might be inclined to flip that on his head and say that um, it's excessive self-knowledge that could actually be the problem, often. Um, being too committed to ideas about who we are or what we need, um, particularly in the case of, say, uh, greed, uh, the the greedy person, in, in a way, is not a stranger to themselves because they know precisely what they, they want. And that causes them to act in violent and rapacious ways. And so maybe um, sort of divesting ourselves of self-knowledge is actually... Um, would be morally beneficial, perhaps.
2: Um, Well, I don't want to make it too contemporary, but uh, since I've read the book and prepared the question, we've had the resignation of the governor of New York State, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who in his uh, faux apology and taking, quote-unquote, full responsibility for what took place with his transgressions with 11 women, did not, in fact, seem to take full responsibility, as pretty much everybody noted. He seemed to be uh, very much a stranger to himself. intentionally or or not mm. um so uh fred in, in your case i i thought a, a correlation to this was you were talking about knowledge including obviously self-knowledge and you know, an interesting quote you say it is as if god were trying to call us but the telephone line we're always busy uh what's your your viewpoint and degree to which we we understand ourselves and indeed actually have knowledge as opposed to what you called self-generated personal dramas
3: yeah. Um we are in a way an expression of information that what expresses itself in form and we can communicate information through the mind and through our feelings. And um but if we help to put our mind to a rest, mind in a way is also an alternative to what, I, what we earlier discussed as the path, then we can go into the field of our feelings and heart. That means we can just graze the meadows and we can go through the forest without the path. And in that case, our consciousness can be informed from beyond. Instead of thinking, we allow ourselves to be thought. Instead of feeling, we allow ourselves to be felt. It means to letting go of control and still be alert and allow with what is given as information through our intuition, feeling, and heart to go our way.
2: Yeah, no, that's very much how I took it, that you were trying to uh, not overly privilege, I guess I'd say, the thought faculties and allow for that we sense, we feel, and we think, and all three have a role, and it is sometimes the the first two, the sensing and feeling that gets uh, uh, undermined or ignored or or kind of put down, as it were.
3: no, well, and indeed, I think the big problem is we have put the thinking capacity on a pedestal. And if we think without allowing our thoughts to go through the heart, the decisions that we take may uh, be like unguided missiles that uh, hit and can create enormous chaos like climate change because what we forget the feminine side in all of us the receiving side of feeling we don't use the intuition we don't take serious we compete we don't cooperate Uh, i would say if we can make the move from competition to cooperation and comparing with care in order to share with care in an inclusive system, then we would create and change our society in a more functional and loving way.
2: Fair enough. Um, moving on, but in a related way, I'm hoping um, another thing you bring up, David, in the book, it's question 39, and I'm not trying to make you uh, grab your book and then... And, and, <laughs> quickly peruse through the uh, what was written on it, but uh, if you can speak from instinct or however you want to approach it. But the question number 39 is, do you have an identity? And I may have said this in this, including in the context of Fred's book, because that identity to the extent it is woven around oneself and the degree to which one understands oneself, but also bringing in uh, other people in your life, whether it's an intimate circle or community and society and even the the planet itself what what's your sense of how we might approach that question which is so foundational do you have an identity what what might you offer to us there
1: well it's interesting that you use the word circle um because i think for that one i use emerson as the answer um you do from his uh, essay circles um and the way he seems to conceive of identity is that it's it's a limitation or, or at least our identity should be fashioned through a sort of process of constantly uh, evolving into greater circles, the process of becoming. Um, so I, I mean it's very much connected to the previous question about self-knowledge. Um and and you you know Dan you allude to the 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 potential problems of people sort of um abdicating their their sort of claims to to self-knowledge because it could lead to sort of um similarly, and then thereby abdicating their responsibility for their actions. Um, and so there are there are possibly dangers, but I, I think I would I'm more sympathetic to the, the sort of the Amazonian perspective of um that our identity should be something in which we're constantly seeking to to sort of shed. Um and uh and and again that self-knowledge can um can be uh a sort of terrible limitation on our capacity to 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 think. Um um and it, it maybe it's similar to what fred was saying that that is it's better to embrace a sort of um a state of openness um and that notions of identity can foreclose that
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Yeah, no, that, that's one of the things I enjoyed in my readings of Emerson. He made me think very much of uh, a contemporary of his, Walt Whitman, who in one of his poems said, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am full of multitudes. I, I loved how Emerson was uh, always seeking to be, you know, be becoming and allow that there was contradictions in his thoughts because it was all a matter of the exploration,
1: Um but, uh, sorry i wonder it, if that's yeah. so that's something that we all sort of delight in if a poet says it but if a politician had said the same thing how would we react
2: <laughs> true <laughs> uh well if you have a long enough career like our current president mr biden um i think there's going to be contradictions and yes we uh we can go after them pretty hard uh with the standards of different eras uh it, it certainly does happen yes um but I, I would we would we permit different.
1: the politician you know that that um the, the poet's way out.
2: Well, the politician holds power, presumably the poets rarely do. And I speak as a former poet and I can assure you, I had no power whatsoever uh, as a poet. So I think the question comes do do, do the, uh, the standards and the beliefs bring harm to others. And, uh, maybe the politicians in more of a position to bring that harm, unfortunately, as well as benefits perhaps. And that could be why the standard applies. But, uh, should some allowances be made, uh, I think they could be, uh, depends on the degree of harm, perhaps. Uh, Fred, your, your your thoughts on what, where we're at right now. I was thinking about community consciousness in part, because uh, you have a lot of uh, critiques of what I would say is almost implicitly about American individualism, because you're concerned that they, you know, it's not just about self-preservation, but also paying attention to the community.
3: Yeah. You know, there are so, wonderful examples of how we can cooperate. I already mentioned this already. Take an orchestra. People have joy in play, playing music. Those instruments were made by people that were able to make those instruments and to tune them. And then the, 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 the musicians, they play. They play together. And instead of competing with one another to exclude them, no, they allow one another to play a solo and support the other in playing the solo. So what it teaches me is that, yes, we can cooperate together, we can do things together, but we can allow others to shine too. And when they're shining, we're not jealous at them. No, we can support them. And if we would use that metaphor for organizing our our society, it would work much better. The basic problem is that in our whole human culture, we have put the male um, uh, function on a pedestal at the cost of the feminine, of the female uh, uh, function. And so everything that the mind produces is valued and intuition we don't take serious. And so the male part comes with individualism and competition and cooperation and togetherness uh, that is a representation of, of the female principle. So if women can help us to more use our female side, And when we can, as men, remind women to not go and make the same mistakes as we do, we could do things together much better.
2: Okay, well, that uh, brings me nicely to the next topic I want to talk about, which is indeed the the role of emotions. And I'll I'll stay with you, Fred, for a moment, because maybe you want to elaborate on what you just said. Because this comes up in your essay on competition as opposed to cooperation, which is what an orchestra needs. And uh, you have the statement, all we ultimately have our own feelings. And where I want to take this in a moment is one of the questions you raise, David, is can emotions lie? And another question was, is everything we do motivated by desire? Uh, and the degree to which we're talking about reason versus emotion and desire would be intriguing to me. But let, let's stay with you, Fred, for a moment. Uh, what more would you like to say about the, the importance of that statement? Uh, ultimately, all we have are our own inner feelings that seems like really uh central to your to your essays
3: yeah the first thing i wanted to to reiterate allow yourself to listen to your feelings and do know when your feelings are burdened with emotions emotions are different from feelings feelings in itself are basically neutral it's the vibration the pure vibration that we can experience when we don't have opinions. So then we can be part of a total consciousness. But emotions are very popular in, in a way it are forms of fear that makes the instrument of feeling play false. When you play the violin on on the string, the, the, the sound it produces has the freedom to go through the body of the violin. And an emotion in, in that way of expressing it is like a block of chewing gum on that um, body of the violin. So if we would bring our attention uh, to the chewing gum, our love, inside, it will melt and we can come back in feel into the real feelings.
2: Am I a little bit clear to um, express this? Um, I admit to being a little bit lost in that I, I think psychologists normally use uh, the word feelings for what we've we've gone to in our conscious state of reflection and emotions when it's on a more intuitive level. But uh, however the terminology gets used, um, yeah, it, there can be a distinction yeah. between the two terms. Yeah.
3: yeah, It's a different way of expressing it. Sorry, yeah, then I understand that it can be confusing.
2: Oh no, that that's quite right. This is an exploration as opposed yeah. to 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 pat answers, so that's fine. Um, David, as you've been listening to this and thinking about the the two questions from your book that I raised, what might you want to say about the role of emotions and whether they lie, and uh, if we're how much we are motivated by desire in terms of our our actions in life as opposed to reason?
1: Well, in terms of emotions lying, um, William James had the The thought that our emotions are, or um, many of our emotions are actually reactions to physiological states, um, so that it's not that we say experience fear emotionally and then our body reacts and our you know our, our heart rate increases. It's that the fear is a reaction to what the body is doing, um, which then, if James is right about that, then the question then becomes whether the the body can lie. Um, and I think it's certainly the case that it could be, um, it, it could be deceptive if we think of the way that the, the body is going to be reacting to the environment that it's in. And so, um, the environment can cause our bodies to react in ways, uh, that lead to emotions that actually maybe aren't, um, uh, are going to sort of distort our, our, our self-understanding, um. So for instance, um, uh, an example, maybe, uh, you go into an example and, uh, sure. it leads to a sense of nervousness and that might lead you to believe that, wow, you think this is really important or this is really what you want. Um, but that might not be the case at all, but the environment has, uh, impressed itself upon you in such a way that can, um, distort the way you feel and then, distort your understanding of, of, of what you really want. I think um, it reminds me of something, as uh, Gilles Deleuze said, um, I think in Anti-Oedipus, that the, um, the incest taboo doesn't exist because it's actually what we want. It's, the taboo is created to make us believe it's what we want. Um, and so the, the taboo is there to manufacture a sort of sense of, of desire which isn't actually true. Um and in terms of that question of of um do we always follow our desires, I think I'd think of that in normative terms and and, and think we don't, and, and maybe think that we that we ought to. I mean Jeremy Bentham, the the utilitarian, thought that we are always desirous of pleasure. We're always pursuing pleasure, which is a sort of um almost a paradoxical state because it's sort of always Desire and satisfaction, which is an end to desire, so desire is sort of seeking its own annihilation um, but I think it would be an interesting experiment to sort of to live in such a way that the things that we 're perpetually desiring are desire itself um, and I think that would be an interesting project
2: well i I do have a couple of foundational beliefs in this realm one is and, and I, I really intrigued with the idea can the body lie to itself and how much is the presentation, the stimuli, and the environment and the situation, something that could lead to us, you know, the the body unwittingly lying to itself, if nothing else. I guess one thing I go to is a statement someone once made that, you know, the the two things we most want in life is to feel good about ourselves and to attract others, and it comes back to survival, and that with emotions, fear is so foundational because, after all, it is about the survival of the species and the reproduction of the species, and if you're not around, you're not going to reproduce. And that that seems to me, you know, solid enough as, as a as a starting point here. Often, I have to ask a question. I wasn't going to go there necessarily, but since we're talking about desire, I just can't resist one of the questions in your book, David. It's uh, number 192. Uh, and I've never in my 65 podcast to date uh, gone near the subject of sex. Uh, but here you have 192 is, is it possible to have dignified sex? <laughs> Uh, I, I imagine the listeners could be interested in the answer. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, some of the questions are sort of, um, leading in a way, um, because, uh, St. Augustine had the view that, um, it is the reason why it's, it's, we, we do it in private is because it's, um, uh, intrinsically shameful, um, so he was connecting the fact that it's uh, there's a lack of dignity or oh, dignity I, etymologically is worthiness. There's a lack of worthiness about it. To, to it being shameful. I I don't I don't think his argument is convincing. Um, but I do think that um, it's 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 interesting because it's it's a realm of social life essentially. It is a social activity in which because it's private there, there aren't norms and codes of etiquette as to how to do it. So it's very improvised in a lot of ways. Um, uh, there's not, um, uh, there's, it, it's not something which we can really do impolitely or politely. Those sort of concepts don't apply to it. Um, and so I don't think the concept of dignity applies to it. And I think that why I think that's interesting is something that's so important to us, um, is, is is an experience in which we're not we, there is no way to do it in a dignified manner. <laughs> or perhaps there is, but we haven't invented the codes to do so. Um and that maybe that's for the best. Um and therefore it might lead us to radically revise our our notion of of the of the importance of dignity. Um because the 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 question inside the question, I suppose, is how important is dignity? Um Yes, yes. And I'm skeptical about yeah. it.
2: And, and, and Fred, I, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, I, to me, you know, the, the realm of the senses of dignity, pleasure, connection, community. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you have a vantage point on this.
3: Yeah, well, um, um, I think sex and tennis have in the original meaning a lot in common. Way back, tennis was developed to play together. So I play the ball to you, for example, David, in such a way that you can stretch and return the ball. So in such a way that we can do the continuum, which, by the way, is the basis of the whole universe, plus and minus. So we help one another to stretch and be in touch with making love it is the same we are together there is no dignity there's no non-dignity it's just a creative act like tennis is we play together and new expressions of life can come from it so if we start to sit on the sideline as a journalist and look at sex we may have thousands of opinions some people like to do it private of most of them some people don't care if it's private or public you know it's there who decides on what what is good or what is non-good it's indeed one day somebody important shame and with shame the whole thing started to be a little bit different i think why would sex be shameless Are we all products running around here as a product of some act of shame? We are 7 billion people, all the animals, all forms of creation. Is nature shaming herself for itself, for the creative act?
1: Yeah, Augustine, he thought that um, the reason why it's shameful is because it involves a lack of control. So... (laughs) Aha,
3: yeah, there we go. And that's the original subject. If we can allow ourselves to be thought and to be felt, which means let go of control but still be present, which is something different, then life would change. We don't need to lose ourselves when we are not in control. We can be fully aware even.
2: Well, and very interesting, David, in your book at one point, I don't remember which question it is, but the Marquis de Sade enters the book. And uh, his version of sex involved, uh, interestingly, both a great deal of him wanting to exercise control and a great mm. deal of wanting to throw off religion and commit heresies, which was trying to evade control. That's how I took it.
1: Yeah, and, and he um, he was, uh, in, the, in the extract I use, he's trying to um, free sex from the, the idea of it being unnatural. Um, That all all desires, but the implication he has is that the only unnatural desire is the desire to end desire. Beyond that, all desires are natural. Um, Now, I don't know whether that's a particularly interesting insight or if that just ultimately means that the concept of what is natural and what is unnatural doesn't apply and we can't get any sort of um, use out of it. Okay. Um, I
2: will go on to an. Another question, if you don't mind here, we only have a few minutes, and and I wanted to take it a little bit more in a personal direction. Uh, I think I have a fairly good sense, especially from your essays, David, of what your uh, uh, orientation, moral underpinnings are. Uh, David, you're posing the questions, and uh, there are answers from others, but I'm, I'm looking for your own voice as well, and I'm intrigued by what you might say. One of the questions, 108, was... Which would you most like to excel in, and the options given in one o eight, if I remember correctly, were strength, intelligence, kindness, or beauty forced, <laughs> forced to choose David in your case, I'd be curious what your answer might be
1: um, uh, the the thing is these questions they can be quite revealing, and you know um so i i I feel I ought to say kindness, Um, but I think in truth, my answer would be intelligence. Um,
2: And and sure. And anything you want to elaborate on, on that?
1: um, Not. um, So, I mean, uh, you know, there's a way of uh, conceiving of intelligence. I think we've been alluding to this throughout, which is that of, of possessing the answers and of, um, of uh, being able to uh, say, uh, attain a sort of sense of superiority over others because you you possess these answers and you possess the knowledge but i'd see intelligence as as really being the ability to um identify uh problems and to um use problems in ways to um extend and excite uh, your own thoughts um so as i conceive it of it that an intelligent life would be an, ex- an exciting life um uh yeah, does that make sense? No,
2: I I think that no, I think that's a, a fair answer. I when you mentioned that the the answer one perhaps should choose is kindness. I have a new book coming out shortly called Blah Blah Blah, A Snarky Guide to Office Lingo. And one of the contributions was about empathy. And the person said, doing an act of kindness but hoping secretly that it gets recorded and, and gets broadcast on social media, uh, which is revealing of the state of society today. But no, I think intelligence uh, as you're defining it is often mapped to the character trait of openness to experience. Right. Uh, as well as open, openness to to inquiry itself. Um, well, sorry, can in you in your case, Fred, I'm oh, sure go ahead. Can we, uh, we all me put me put our thoughts
1: on the table now that I've done so <laughs> <laughs> I I admit as
2: I get older, I actually might choose beauty um <laughs> i used to put up with really shabby apartments as i moved from one place to another and at some point in my late 30s i said i i can't stand this anymore i i want to uh be out in nature and when i'm back home i want it to look nicer than it's been in the past and if i'm poor for it so be it um because i think i can expand in term the notion of beauty do you mean uh the beauty of one's uh, conduct with others the uh, not being caught up in uh adversarial emotions like envy uh, and so forth. I remember my father saying to me at one point, you know, there's no easier way to drive yourself crazy than spend your time comparing yourself to others. Yeah. So that, that's how I, I take beauty. Um, but yeah, let's put the cards <laughs> on the table. Uh, Fred, which, which would you choose and why?
3: Well, you know, first of all, I, when, when you mentioned it, I thought from the inside, do I experience beauty? And to what extent? Why would I compare? Perhaps more beautiful than yesterday? Would I experience my own intelligence without um, comparing it to others? What would it feel to just feel intelligent? What is it? Would be, is it intelligent to experience beauty? Is it beautiful to experience intelligence? The same with kindness. We can all reverse it or or uh, do we want the ex- to experience these qualities through others so that it reflects on us how they judge us as being beautiful, intelligent or kind. And then I would prefer to go for the mix because I cannot see one from the other.
2: Yeah, I, I suspect that's ultimately the, the answer. Um, so, well, we we put our cards on the table. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure whether they're the ace of spades or the, yeah. the, the four of clubs, but uh, hopefully we put a few cards on the table here. Uh, Fred, was there something more you wanted to say before I, I wrap up here?
3: One little thing. Um, I, I think uh, David said something about intelligence is the capacity to solve problems. Is that not too narrow a definition? Because if you see wholeness, then maybe all problems will dissolve. Uh, do we need to intervene into a problem, what we may see as a problem? It's just a question. I mean, I don't think we need to narrow it down to solving problems. It is society looks at it uh, as uh, intelligent people in that way, but I'm not
2: sure. And, I and before I come to the cl- close, David, do you want to have a, a last word there?
1: sure yeah I, I i don't think i said solving problems i i think it's um that sort of uh terminating them i think it's it's actually the way i understand it is as being able to unearth um uh dwell in and and utilize problems um to extend uh the 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 uh the conceptual framework with which we use to understand the world um so I wouldn't want it to be a matter of of, of silencing the problems at all.
2: Fair, fair enough. I, I've been in the business world where officially there are no problems. There are only challenges and solutions, which led me knew right away that I was not in a space that I was going to feel comfortable in, uh, because obviously there are problems in the world. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you both so much, uh, David and Fred, for, for being my guests here today. This has been episode number 66, Two Intriguing Minds in Conversation. My guest, David Birch, he is the author of Pandora's book, 401 Philosophical Questions to Help You Lose Your Mind with Answers. And Fred Matzer is the author of Beyond Us, a humanitarian's perspective on our values, beliefs, and ways of life. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or you can go to the New Books Network, type in the show's name, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and find the other episodes there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram, but I've had two guests today, and I can't resist having two different epigrams that I'm going to close with. Uh, The first comes from William Shakespeare, Ripeness is All, and the second from one of my personal favorites, Henry David Thoreau, who said, Our winged thoughts are turned to poultry. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.